Good evening, everybody, or good morning, everybody, wherever you are. Tonight we are continuing with uh, reviewing the um, volume two of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, edited by Venerable Children. And so before we begin, we're going to be doing chapter three tonight. But before we begin, let's take a moment to set our motivation. So in order to build a firm and stable Dharma practice, we must somehow bring these teachings of the mind, how it functions, what it apprehends, which minds help us progress on the path and which ones are obstacles to that. We really need to bring these teachings into our practice. Because our minds are what we develop, what we purify, what we transform, what we discipline, what we motivate, how we interpret the world, and not just to fulfill our worldly dreams or aspirations, but also for our awakening. And to understand who is this person who is trying to generate these virtuous states of mind as they go towards Buddhahood. Who is this self, this I? So tonight, let's take this opportunity to refresh our minds on the fundamental basis of the self, the body and mind, and that in dependence upon this basis, we have what we need to attain awakening for the benefit of all. So let's explore that tonight, with chapter three, for the benefit of all. So um, I have to say that when I first perused this chapter, I had flashbacks of Daniel Perdue's book. There's a lot on, there's phenomena and existent and self and mental factors and lots of definitions and definiendums. Um, But you know, the more that I spent time on the chapter, I have really begun more and more to appreciate, first of all, the title of the book is extremely, I mean, it's so accurate, the foundation of of the Buddhist practice. And that um, the mind, I mean, where else do we go to be able to create the cause and conditions for awakening? And when I think about all of the uploading that we do during the course of the day, our body and our mind. And as Venerable Tarpa you know, reviewed last week, these seven types of awarenesses for all that we apprehend, the different objects at any moment of time, which mind is operating? You know, which cognizer? Are we getting a, a real accurate description of what we're, we're seeing, this object of phenomena, or are we spacing out or having some erroneous conception? And so as I did this chapter and looked over, it was like this whole idea about what to cultivate and what to abandon became more and more a profound topic to explore because without an understanding of what a reliable cognizer is, 
how our internal world apprehends the world. There's no way in heck are we going to be able to have the wherewithal to be able to understand what to abandon, what to cultivate, how to cultivate bodhicitta and the determination to be free, and to have the ability to, to garner any wisdom. If we can't first be able to discern what's going on inside of our minds and be able to identify when we're tracking in the, the correct way and when we're not. And so this chapter, despite the fact that it's got a lot of definitions and lists and things like that, His Holiness really lines out the whole kind of idea of how the mind functions, what is the nature of the person who's trying to practice the Dharma in order to free themselves from misery and attain awakening, that this person depends on a body and mind, both impermanent phenomena who live in a world that is filled with a plethora of phenomena. So how does this phenomena, this person, relate to all this other phenomena in a wise and ethical and precise and accurate way in order to garner all the cause and conditions that we need to become awakened? And to, um, and to endeavor to understand with a reliable cognizer that these phenomena are impermanent, unsatisfactory by nature, and that they're selfless. So that's kind of, that's the first paragraph of the chapter. His Holiness really lines out what we're trying to do here. So when I started going over the topics, I kept getting this picture of a funnel. And it's this this extraordinary funnel. It, It encompasses all of the universe. And His Holiness starts off with the biggest category that we have in existence, which is the selfless that which does not exist inherently. So my, my mind goes to this incredible funnel that has limitless edges that encompasses everything that is the selfless, which is everything that lacks inherent existence. And then I think about, then he takes us into the divisions of the selfless. And so we've got the existent, that which is suitable to be known by an awareness or perceived by a mind. And then we have the non-existence, which can't be perceived by the mind. So what I want to do tonight is to kind of go through this kind of funnel image. We're going to do a little bit of the list. We're going to do some definitions. I'm going to ask for some support from the community. We're going to, because a lot of this stuff is going to be familiar, because we did go through Daniel Perdue's book. We've gotten Geshe Topke has with the Pramana Vartika. Some of these things are in here. Uh, Jeffrey teachings on dependent arising and emptiness. So as we go along, I'm going to look for your support on making this a little bit more than just a whole bunch of lists and definitions. Okay, so His Holiness starts off with the selfless, that which does not exist inherently. Underneath that is the existent, which is all phenomena that is perceived by mind. If something is an existent, it has to be perceived by consciousness. That's a really important piece to remember. And that a non-existent is that which is not perceived by mind. So anything from rabbit horns, jackalopes, sky flowers, inherent existence are non-existent. So then you look at the funnel again, and His Holiness takes it down a little bit more. And underneath existent, you've got two more categories, permanent and impermanent phenomena. So just follow the, like the, the precision and the the... Um, yeah, the precision on how these categories kind of roll into each other. Okay, so permanent and impermanent phenomena. 
The permanent are the phenomena that are unable to perform a function. They are not produced under any cause and conditions whatsoever. They don't change moment by moment. There are two kinds of permanent phenomena. One of them is the occasional-like ones, which is, let's say, the emptiness of a cup. It is permanent as long as the cup exists, and as soon as that cup is destroyed, that permanent phenomena called the emptiness of the cup is also destroyed. And then there is non-occasional, which is uncompounded space. So these are the phenomena in our world that are not produced by cause and conditions nor change moment by moment. And they say that they are limitless in number. And then on the other side of that is impermanent phenomena, also called things, which do perform functions, are produced by causes and conditions, and do change moment by moment. Now, there are three underneath this category. So what do we have here, folks, underneath impermanent phenomena? Form? Consciousness? Consciousness. Abstract. Abstract. Composites. Okay. So what's under form? Give me some... Um, examples of what would be found as an object considered to be suitable to be a form. Just throw out it. Excuse me? Red. The color red. red. The color red. Mm. Okay. Objects of the senses. The body which is composed of the four elements and a whole lot of other things. They also say that dream objects of the mental consciousness are also forms. And those, um, His Holiness says, the subtle forms that meditators can create through concentration. I'm saying that that might be the nimbitas, those very, very subtle objects that arise out of deep concentration. So form goes from a wide gamut from either gross to very, very subtle. Okay, and how about consciousness? What's the definition of consciousness? What do we got? Or clear and cognizant, right? That which is clear and cognizant. And there are two kinds of consciousnesses. Two types, I should say. Mind and mental factors. Different ways of saying, right, there's seven awarenesses, mind and mental factors, there's conceptual and non-conceptual as well. Okay, under minds, there are six types which apprehend the objects of form. So we've got, those are the first five, visual, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, auditory, and as well as the primary mental consciousness. Okay, that's one of the ways in which consciousness is broken down. And then what about mental factors? What's their function? How do they kind of work? All the little details of things. Some are harmful, bring suffering. Some are virtuous, bring a sense of well-being. This is a huge, huge category. And as I was doing this chapter, seeing the huge influence of these mental factors on our experience of life, of ourselves. And then the third one, the abstract composites, which are neither form nor consciousness. What was interesting that I didn't realize that His Holiness puts in the definition here is it says to perceive an abstract composite, we have to perceive something else. So they don't kind of stand alone, which I never even, you know, I kept putting them as, as something that you could see directly with your 
consciousnesses, but you need to have something else to be there, to be able to perceive them. Like a person, you need to have a body and mind. If you want to perceive impermanence, you have to have an object that is changing. And, what, and underneath abstract composites, we've got persons, which I love the fact that any living being that is designated depending upon aggregates, like a cat, a farmer, a politician, a stink bug, they all under the, the uh, category of person. So our kitties are persons, all the insects here are persons, farmers, miners, techies, frogs, everybody. And then there's not a person. What would be some samples of something that isn't a person that's under abstract composites? Democracy, aging, time, birth. And once again, they have to, we have to perceive something else to perceive those. So birth would probably think you would have to perceive the action of a woman birthing a child. You couldn't just make that up out of nowhere. What about time? What would we need to, what would we need to perceive to be able to perceive time? What would that be? What kind of form or consciousness would that have to be? What would that Crossed a wall? Counting, maybe? Perception of change could be a way we could put time on. Because you have this whole, you know, this is one of the things I found that I could list these things, but then when I wanted to describe, well, what does that mean? It's a little bit harder. You really have to think about how these not person abstract composites, how they're perceived, how you need something else in order to do that. Okay, then uh, His Holiness gets into the five aggregates. Now, he says that in general, the five aggregates or skandhas include all impermanent phenomena, but when they are spoken of in relationship to the person, they are the basis of designation of that person. So I went to volume three because there's some beautiful sections in the samsara um, part of that book that talk about the five aggregates. And I wanted to give the, the definition that uh, His Holiness has in that. And this is where, when I went over the chapter, I wanted to spend some time. Because when you think about it, we are in our continual cycle of rebirth due to taking on these polluted aggregates. And I have said that, and I've heard that for over 20 years, and I just blow that off as something that somebody else has to deal with. But in this chapter, I really looked at what are these aggregates, and how is it that they, due to being under the control of afflictions and karma, we grasp and cling at the time of death and take on these aggregates over and over again. I was just got a little bit more fast. I wanted to understand the relationship of person to the five aggregates. So in volume three, His Holiness says, our five aggregates are subject to clinging are in the nature of dukkha. They are the container in which past karma ripens and the body in particular is the basis for aging, sickness, and death. Clinging to our present aggregates, our mind generates more afflictions, which creates more karma, which causes future rebirths, as well as pain and dissatisfaction during those lives. 
I mean, that is about as concise of a step-by-step process on how we cycle in samsara. Clinging to worldly success in this life habituates us with this mental state, setting the stage for it to increase in future lives. In short, the aggregates are the basis in which the three, six, and eight types of dukkha run rampant. Contemplating this deeply leads to the arising of a clear and powerful intention to renounce the bondage of samsara and seek freedom. So I wanted to really unpack the five aggregates tonight a little bit. And they are illust- um, the order that they're illustrated in, they go from increased subtle- subtlety, so the form is the coarsest, all the way down to the subtlest, which is the consciousness. And there's also quite a bit on the five aggregates and following in the uh, Buddha's footsteps, volume four, when you get into the, uh, um, the four establishments of mindfulness, the mindfulness of phenomena. It's really unpacked in there too. Okay, so form, first one. So the body gets a category all by itself. Why would that be? What do you think? Why does the body get a category all by itself? What might it be? The other four are, you know, consciousnesses or mental aggregates. What, why is the body so important that it gets something by itself, besides the fact that it's material? What might that be? When we think about the physical process of the body, That is born, it ages, it gets sick and dies. From womb to tomb, pretty much. Yeah. The form aggregate is the way that karma ripens to propel a new rebirth. So the, the basis of the individual person of each of those rebirths is and what kind of aggregates they have, what kind of experience they have is totally based on the form that's ripened at ripens right before, you know, as we're taking a new rebirth. Yeah. So it is basically, I mean, the mind wouldn't be able to exist in samsara without having some sort of embodiment. Yeah. And it is a guest house. And that it can't do anything without the other four aggregates, at least in this realm. I mean, the other formless realm that's just mental. But in this realm, and that we create a lot of karma with these bodies, as Venerable Chuni is saying, as a result. This is how it happens. And our relationship to it. I mean, it's full-time care and maintenance schedule. I mean, just to keep it alive. The second one is the feeling, the mental factor, that when any sense consciousness makes contact with the corresponding object, we have the experience of any of the three feelings. This is also where I think Venerable Nima said today, this is where the karma ripens also in the feeling aggregate. And so when I looked at this, I was thinking, well, you know, you have somebody who's looking at or tasting something. You have three different people. One of them's going to have maybe an unpleasant feeling, a sensation from that taste. Somebody might have a pleasant, somebody have a neutral. You know, to really understand that how we experience phenomenon has to do with the karma that's ripening in that, in that aggregate. And that, I mean... And that this is where they say you can cut the root of cyclic existence. 
in this aggregate. Is that true? Between contact and feeling or feeling and ex craving? Contact and feeling. Feeling craving? Okay, we have a... There's the where the root of cyclic existence is between. Okay, but isn't there some place in feeling and craving, clinging? Okay. Okay. So one thing I'm trying for my own mind, I'm trying to see how each one of these aggregates plays a crucial role in our experience of our own selves and also of the world and how we're creating the causes to have, you know, whatever future we have really depends on a lot of how we relate to these aggregates. Discrimination is a mental factor that apprehends the particular attributes of an object and can distinguish one thing from another. So this is, His Holiness says attractive, unattractive, you know, funny, not funny, spatula, knife. So this is where the, we can actually distinguish objects from one another. That can get us into yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later here. And then the miscellaneous factors is the grab bag. Okay, this is where emotions, attitudes, views, beliefs, as well as the abstract composites of karmic seeds and the latencies of afflictions also abide in the miscellaneous factors aggregate. So that is filled with a lot of things. And we'll talk about those too. And then the last but not least is the primary consciousness, which includes the sense consciousness and the mental primary consciousness. So when His Holiness, after this list, he goes through really um, unpacking a little bit the feeling and the discrimination aggregates. He says they have their own special category because they play very special roles in the schema of samsara. This is, once again, another thing that I think is very important for us to understand in, in the world of phenomena. That in samsara, the pleasant, the unpleasant feelings evoke attachment and animosity. These emotions motivate us to create karma that ripens in birth and cyclic existence. So there's the feeling aggregate. So powerful. And this is happening moment by moment by moment. A lot of times we have neutral feelings. So I don't think, I'm not cognizant when I'm having neutral feelings. I'm only cognizant when I've got, you know, some pleasant feelings going on or some unpleasant feelings going on. But this is happening like every moment of our life. Discrimination is the source of disputes because sentient beings discriminate one thing as attractive, another as repulsive, one idea as right, another as wrong becoming attached to their views. We all quarrel with each other, especially to those who hold different views. I mean, if we don't see this happening right now, I don't know what else you could say. This is discrimination running amok, <laughs> thus creating karma that propels rebirth and cyclic existence. This is, con this is continually happening in each sentient being in the universe. So as all of this is ripening, this is cycling through every moment of our existence, and each individual sentient being is having a very different experience depending on their karma. It's amazing that we actually get along, that we actually communicate, that we actually dwell together in some harmony on this planet, considering how diverse the karma and these five aggregates play out. That became very apparent in this <laughs> review. 
when meditating on the selflessness of persons, we examine how the I exists. Okay, so we're back to sort of the, that's the chapter's title, you know, the, the basis of the self. Is it the body? Is it the prim- a primary consciousness? Is it a mental factor? Can the self be found in the aggregates? In one of them? In all of them? You know, as a collection? Or maybe the self is totally separate from them? There is so much going on. You know, and I can say honestly that I can get on board about the possibility that I'm not my body, especially as I get older. The idea of not being my body becomes more and more pleasant thought, feeling. <laughs> but the person sure does seem to be in, mixed in there with the mind and these mental factors. And it's only through analysis of looking at this, looking at these aggregates, looking at these minds, and looking through, you know, through analysis is trying to figure out how the I exists or doesn't exist and what its relationship is to all of these aggregates. I mean, this really, there's so much there to find the person. Where do you start? So it really kind of loosened things up for me looking at these aggregates and seeing, you know, the person's in there, good luck finding them. There's just so much going on. So at this point, I wanted to go to the handout. Let's see how we're doing. Okay. Um, and my, the first reflection there, I was wondering, because we've got the five aggregates, and I wanted to see if folks could come up with a one-line statement to identify one of the aggregates in your own life experience. So you could take the form aggregate and just give one statement that as, a, as an experience, as a human being with these five, five aggregates, give a one-line statement about feeling, you personally. Give one-line experience about a miscellaneous, some belief or some view you have, just to kind of own the fact that these aggregates are, are playing inside of our minds. And I can repeat them if you want to just put it out there or you can use the microphone so everybody can hear them. I think this is really important to personalize these aggregates. Continuing on with the theme of the BBC, I experience an unpleasant feeling every time I get a migraine. When I think of a safe and effective COVID vaccine, I feel happy. All right, take that. So that's a few things going on there. Yeah, discrimination, feeling, miscellaneous factors. Yes, Ben Bukuda. I'm a slave to my feelings. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. How about form? We got any personal experiences of form? I was happier with my younger form. (laughs) (laughs) Venerable Tarpa. (laughs) Okay, we've got a feeling aggregate. We've got the discrimination. We've got the miscellaneous factors, and we've got the form all playing, and the The, mental consciousness as well. Discrimination is the one that comes to mind for me. Okay. Discrimination can either be your best friend or your worst enemy. All right. Absolutely. 
give me a give me a identifying objects and just discriminating. Well, it's, it it identifies this is this and that is that, and we can do that in a way that makes us miserable. <laughs> we can do that in a way that frees us. I mean, I think it must be one that is variable, <laughs> depending on what it's mixed with. Yeah. I don't know for sure, but that's my thought about it. Yeah. A lot of complexity. Okay, one more. And this mind is a self-perpetuating machine. When you think about the 12 links. All right, thank you. That's, I mean, just, that was one of the reflections in the bottom of the chapter after the five aggregates that was asked to, to identify each of the aggregates in our own experience, contemplate their different functions and unique attributes. Okay, so then we're going to go to consciousness, which is one of the big headings in this chapter, and mind and mental factors. So one of the things that became really evident too for me, and Venerable Nemo once again nailed it today on our BBC, is that you really begin to see that the mind is the source of happiness and pain. And that our main practice is identifying and subduing the destructive mind states that bring suffering. <laughs> and to identify and enhance the virtuous ones that bring both temporal happiness while in samsara and the ultimate happiness of liberation and Buddhahood. And anything that we can do to figure out which, you know, which category a lot of these experiences go will really help and it will impact our actions of body, speech, and mind. So the mind and mental factors, all the cognizers which everyone is apprehending an object at any given moment consists of a primary consciousness and is usually accompanied by a whole bunch of different varying mental factors. And even though they are different, they arise together as one mental state having the same nature. Um, there was a, there's five similarities and there was a, a, um, a story uh, from the Pali scripture that was a nice analogy to describe how the mental factors relate and uh, accompany uh, a primary consciousness. Because it says they have five similarities. They have the same basis. That subtle material, I think Venable used to call it sense faculties, the subtle material within a grosser sense organ that are sensitive and receptive to their corresponding objects. So mental factors and prime consciousnesses have that. They share that. They share the same observed object, the same aspect of the object, some sort of quality or attribute. The mental factors, the the primary consciousness are arising, abiding, and ceasing simultaneously, and they are the same entity in that they're all going to either be conceptual, non-conceptual, mistaken, or non-mistaken. So even though they perform unique functions of their own, they contribute to the overall flavor of whatever cognizer is apprehending an object at any one given moment. Now, I wasn't quite sure. There wasn't enough to unpack in this in this part of the um, the chapter, because I would have liked to have known a little bit more about this basis, observed object. I couldn't understand how the same entity, if you had a primary auditory consciousness and you had a mental factor of attachment, but they both have to either be conceptual or non-conceptual, mistaken or non-mistaken. I couldn't figure out how a 
how a conceptual consciousness could coexist with a primary consciousness. I just, I got a little stuck there. Because it says that they have to, they, they have to be conceptual mental factors. All the mental factors that come, accompany a primary consciousness have to be conceptual or not conceptual, mistaken or non-mistaken. And the analogy that they use here is that the story is that a king asked a monk, Nagasena, whether mental factors can be separated out such that we can see them as different parts of a puzzle. This one is contact, this one is feeling, this one is discrimination. And Nagasena replied by asking if the king could pick out each of the flavors separate from all the others when the royal cook would make a sauce, which had salt and ginger and cumin seed and pepper and other ingredients. And the king said, no, it would not be possible. So it's to say that all various flavors together give the sauce its taste, even though each ingredient is unique in its own individual flavor. So mental factors accompanying consciousnesses are like that. They enhance the consciousness, they're unique, but they're totally like one nature. But I, I've got a little stuck on this part. Um, I don't know if anybody has any thoughts about these five similarities. Uh, there wasn't much that was said about it. I'm not understanding how you're describing the basis. I guess I th you were saying something about the subtle material, but mm -hmm. that's... Yeah, here. It says they have the same basis, they depend on the same cognitive faculty. And when you look up cognitive faculty in this chapter, His Holiness says that it's the, the, the subtle material. So the main mind and the mental factors share the same sense faculty. If you have an eye sense, right. a primary eye consciousness or primary visual consciousness, then the mental factors that accompany that primary uh, visual consciousness will also rely on the... The same sense visual, faculty. The, the eye sense faculty. Right. Yeah. I got that part. Okay, that's all it's saying there. But for, at the last the one that says they are the same entity, each so, mental state consists of only one primary consciousness and only one of each of its accompanying mental factors. Furthermore, the primary mind and all of its accompanying mental factors are either conceptual or non-conceptual, either mistaken or non-mistaken. Right. Well, that's where I get a little confused, is how can you have a, a mental factor that is a, con you know, a conceptual... If the primary mind is conceptual, then all the mental factors will be considered conceptual too. They accompany that conceptual primary mind. But if it's a sense consciousness... Yes. And it's accompanied by the mental factor of aversion... It doesn't, non-virtuous non mental factors don't accompany sense con primary sense consciousnesses. They only accompany the mental consciousness. Ah, huh. So, as, but as soon as that direct perceiver of an auditory consciousness can turn into a conceptual. You know, you have a primary eye consciousness looking at a shape or a color, right. and you'll have mental factors accompanying that primary consciousness. But then you'll also, at the same time, have a conceptual consciousness coming along the side that either likes that color, doesn't like doesn't that like color, color, attached to that color, averse to that color. So it's not like there's only one mind operating at the same time, right? But there will be one that's dominant. So, um, if, so the, if the visual consciousness, primary visual consciousness is dominant, then the, the mental, primary mental consciousness is also focusing on that object in some way. Okay. That's how I, I understand Okay, this part I didn't, I didn't quite, okay, that's a little bit clarifying, but 
not totally clear. That's a good, the same entity. That was the only one of those five similarities I couldn't understand. Okay. Um, bum, bum. Okay, so then we got into the five omnipresent mental factors. These are the ones that accompany all minds. Without these, complete cognition of an object cannot occur. So these are the ones that are there with all minds. Feeling, pain, pleasure, neutral, there it is again. Discrimination, functions to distinguish, it differentiates and identifies objects. And then intention, which moves the primary consciousness and its accompanying mental factors to the object. This is like the main mover and driver, the motivating element that causes the mind to involve itself and apprehend its object. It is, the, it is action karma. And although this mental factor is not virtuous or non-virtuous or neutral, it becomes so depending on what other mental factors accompany it. So this is the, the, the omnipresent mental factor where we really start engaging is the action, is the karma. The attention which functions to direct the primary consciousness and its mental factors to the object and to actually apprehend the object. There seems to be a, a, slight, a slight difference here. I had a little bit of a difficulty separating out intention from attention. They both focus and hold the mind, but it sounds like intention involves itself. That sounds like it's got more focus on the object than just bringing attention to the object. I, I wasn't quite sure about those two either. And then contact connects the object, the cognitive faculty, and the primary consciousness, acting as the basis for feelings. It is the cause of feeling. So these accompany our minds all the time. Okay, that's, that's one thing. I, I got that part. <laughs> this was like going back and, you know, revisiting uh, um, some really important aspects of um, Lovrig that I had forgotten. So then there's this other set of mental factors. Once again, I think I might need a little bit of help here. I couldn't quite understand a few of them, and some of them were very clear. So these apprehend the individual features of the object, and there are two. The treasury of knowledge says that these five accompany all mental states, whereas the compendium of knowledge says they only accompany virtuous mental states. And then right underneath that, the next sentence was, these five are not themselves virtuous, but become virtuous because of being associated with a virtuous mental state. So it sounds like that was going along with the treasury of knowledge that said it accompanies all mental states. Um, so aspiration mental factor that takes a strong interest in an intended object and is a basis of joyous effort. That sounds like a virtuous mental state. Appreciation stabilizes the apprehension of a pre previously ascertained object so that it can't be distracted by another view. I'm not quite sure what that means. There was no further explanation. Uh, mindfulness repeatedly brings to mind an object that has become familiar and does not allow the mind to be distracted from that object and is the basis of concentration. That one, we've been, that's on a lot of the teachings. 
And that it does say, His Holiness said, in that in the four establishments of mindfulness, their mindfulness has the same meaning as here, but it also works closely together with wisdom. However, when we talk about mindfulness, like this whole rage that has been happening in the world that everybody's doing meditation, doing mindfulness practice and things like that, they said this is on an object that is constantly changing and you may be moving from one object to another or working around it or on it. So the object of concentration is changing. So this is not exactly the mindfulness that's going to give us the kind of concentration that we need, but it's a good start. But this, you know, we're going looking at the mindfulness of, of washing a dish, and then we go and look at the mindfulness using it to look at the blue sky and the way the clouds are moving. That's wonderful, but that's not the kind of mindfulness that we're going to be able to get to these levels of concentration. Concentration dwells one-pointedly for a sustained period of time on a single object. It is the basis for developing serenity, increasing wisdom. Now, I like this when we came to the wisdom part of these five <coughs> object ascertaining mental factors. This was very helpful for me. That this wisdom here is not intelligence in the worldly terms. It functions to discriminate precisely with analysis the qualities, the faults, the characteristics of an object held by mindfulness. This is a wisdom that can be developed and enhanced. It helps cut through any type of indecision and doubt and maintains the root of all constructive qualities in this and in future lives. And it's broken down into these, these two kinds of wisdoms. So the kind of wisdom that when people get born into the world and they seem to have a predisposition for virtuous mental states, or they seem to, when they meet the Dharma, they seem to have like this, um, just this, intuitive or natural understanding of certain topics without having to do a lot of thinking about it, that it's a natural acuity of mind that comes from previous life's karma. So, you know, as we're trying to study the Dharma in this life and really make it familiar in our lives and in our minds, so that in future lives, those that predisposition is going to be there. And we're going to be born with some strong predispositions on certain topics, on certain virtuous states of mind. So that's a good thing to know as we try to study and practice and hold these things for future lives. And then the acquired understanding is the one that's cultivated in this life and can be generated on a whole bunch of different topics. And they broke this down, and this was really helpful too, is that under there's the wisdom of hearing, thinking, and meditating. So we've got the, the understanding, the wisdom of hearing, which is studying a topic, lays the foundation for the other two kinds of wisdom, but what His Holiness says is, says you're not going to have a direct, reliable cognition or inference at this point. This is where we're just hearing the teachings for the first time. We might get a correct assumption or maybe a doubt leaning to the correct conclusion. So this is first on. We're just taking in a lot of Dharma information. We're listening to them. We're studying the topics, reading things. So that's a good start. That's where we, well, we start correct assumptions, doubt leaning toward the correct conclusion. Then the wisdom of thinking or reflecting is when we get into debating, discussing, asking questions with each other, asking questions of our teachers. So we're getting a deeper understanding of the topics. And this is where we can actually gain correct uh, inferential understandings of understanding the topics. It's going to get deeper and deeper. We're going to have clear understandings conceptually. 
And then the wisdom of meditation is derived from very deep personal experiences when understanding the topic gets to a point where you can call it to mind very easily. You're familiar with the topic and all of its pieces and parts, and you have a deep understanding. And this is where you can have a correct view, either a very deep inferential understanding or a direct perception. So this is, I found this extremely helpful knowing that where we can look for the different types of awarenesses and how they can come into play as we learn and study and practice the Dharma. And I would have to think, uh, according to different topics that we might have natural predispositions or affinities for, we may be at slightly different places along this little wisdom you know, line that we might have a little bit of stronger correct assumption on some and maybe a beginnings of some sort of inference through some reasoning. So this was very helpful to um, see how the the different cognizers, the different types of awarenesses come into play on the different wisdoms of hearing, thinking, and meditating. And so there's a clarification here that um, His Holiness says that our current mental factors of concentration and wisdom are the uncultivated basis for the actual concentration of wisdom that arise due to sustained Dharma practice. The wisdom referred to in the expression method and wisdom and the concentration referred to in the phrase concentration found in the four jhanas have a kind of strength, acuity, and effectiveness that for most of us when we say wisdom and concentration, we don't have. They bear the same name, but we're on a much uh, uncultivated level at that point. But His Holiness is that our present <clears throat> mental factors of concentration and wisdom can be nourished and transformed to being much, much deeper levels of the uh, wisdom and concentration. Uncultivated, but possibly can be cultivated, but. Okay, then we're gonna go to the, so then we, okay, so we've had our five omnipresent mental factors that accompany, accompany minds. We have the five object ascertaining mental factors. And now we're gonna go to the 11 virtuous mental factors. And you know, because we spend so much time in our practice looking at afflictive emotions, I thought it would be kind of nice to get acquainted with the <laughs> virtuous ones, which are considered to be the, the counteractions for the afflictive mental states. So um, in Golden Rosary, Lama Sankapa states that the principal phenomena to be contemplated are the factors to adopt and to abandon on the path. So here Dharma refers to both the pure class of phenomena, the beneficial states to cultivate, and the impure class, the afflictions to abandon. Also he says that observing that the afflictive mental factors lack a valid base and thus are easily uprooted by wisdom, lacking any true support for them, they rest entirely on erroneous misconceptions. And that the positive mental factors, however, have the force of reasoning as their backing and therefore can uproot the afflictive factors. Moreover, positive emotions and correct views can be increased limitlessly. So we're going to do our little... Um, I was so... I just enjoyed Venerable Tarpa's uh, multiple choice last week that I decided I went to her and she gave me a, a template. Took me a, Like she said, it's going to take a while to do it. I think it took me a, a day or two. But what I did is I took the virtuous mental factors on our handout 
And I took their descriptions, copy and pasted, she had <laughs> said that she had done last week, and took the definitions and broke them up. And I put them all, mixed them up in a big mix here. And I put below each one of the virtuous mental factors how many points of either a definite part of the definition or an example that would go with that virtuous mental factor. Now, I did this by myself after looking through this book, and I made at least four mistakes. So, because there are some virtuous mental factors that have somewhat similar definitions. So, but anyway, I found this really helpful. And then I made some example. I made some things up that I thought might be examples of virtuous mental factors. Okay, so um, faith. I, and I've got my little cheat sheet here. So, you don't have it. I do. Okay, so faith has got um, three possible either definitions or examples. E, okay. It is confidence in such things as the law of karma and its effects and the three jewels. Okay, that is part of the definition of faith. It produces a joyous state of mind free from the turmoil of the root and auxiliary afflictions. So true. And R. Sarah turned to her refuge in the Three Jewels when her father died from COVID. Integrity. <laughs> X, okay. Avoids negativity for reasons of personal conscience and self-respect. It enables us to refrain from harmful physical, verbal, and mental actions. And you, when the company CEO asked Kimberly to exaggerate the profits for the year-end's report, she clearly and calmly refused. Consideration for others. It cares about the effect of our actions on others and avoids negativity for their sake. It prevents others from losing faith in us and causes joy to rise in the minds of others. I love that possibility. And one more. We did N and we did O. W. Yep. Peter considered his impact on his friends when he refrained from spreading false accusations regarding a fellow hiker in his hiking group. Non-attachment. Referring to an object in cyclic existence, it prevents and counteracts attachment and subdues obsession with attractive objects and people. B. <laughs> took me a while to figure out what might be at non-attachment, but after years in an abusive relationship, Emily was able to see her clinging to a fantasy about her husband changing and was able to end the relationship with clarity and compassion for them both. Non-hatred. Venerable Pendy did her homework. It is a love and benevolence, not just the absence of anger and ill will. I mean, you know, when you think about, I mean, non-hatred sounds like, well, you're not really pissed off at somebody, but it real, it's a love and a benevolence. You know, it's not, a, just, not just an absence of anger and ill will, but it has this warmth, this love to it. So for being such a a name, <laughs> non-hatred. It has a lot in it. It's imbued with a lot of beautiful virtue. 
It is the basis for the prevention of hostility. Okay, non-confusion. Arising from the inborn disposition and nurtured by study, reflection, and meditation, there's a typo, it accompanies the firm wisdom that thoroughly analyzes the nature and specific characteristics of an object. Once again, that's a beautiful definition for non-confusion. Joyous effort. It acts to generate constructive qualities that have not been generated and to bring those that have to completion. L. L. <laughs> For some reason, I thought of Sam Go when I wrote this. I don't know. Hi, Sam. No matter what difficulties life throws at him, Sam can see the virtuous growth possibilities in them and happily gives it his best. Yes, Sam, that's you. Appliancy. A, enables the mind to apply itself to a constructive object in whatever manner it wishes and dissipates any mental or physical tightness or rigidity. Oh, that'd be lovely. Conscientiousness. C, values the accumulation of virtue and guards the mind against that which gives rise to afflictions. And V, it brings to fulfillment and maintains all that is good protects the mind from pollution, and is the root for attaining all grounds and paths. I mean, what a beautiful mental factor to have. And it values the accumulation of virtue and guards the mind against that which gives rise to afflictions. Wow. Full-time job. Non-harmfulness. Yeah. Non-harmfulness. F. It wishes all sentient beings to be free from suffering. It prevents disrespecting others and increases the wish to benefit and, and being and then happiness. That's a typo too. P. I checked this three times. It is compassion. And then S. Even as a child, the Buddha cared and loved all beings, human and non-human. And then last but not least, equanimity. It does not allow the mind to be greatly affected by agitation and laxity without having to exert great effort to prevent them. And T, it is important for the development of serenity and enables the mind to settle and remain on a virtuous object. I found this really helpful to refresh my mind on the virtuous qualities that I can attain. And they are considered to be very powerful antidotes to afflictive emotions. So good to keep that in mind. Okay, so coming along here. Um, then I just wanted to go very quickly through. We know the, the six root afflictions. Want to say them real quickly here, folks? Attachment, anger, arrogance, ignorance, pride. Well, they have, a, they have pride or arrogance. They've got arrogance in the book here. Uh, what are deluded doubt and afflictive views? What's under afflictive views? What do we got? View of the personal identity, extremes. And 
wrong views in general, okay? And then as far as the 20 auxiliary afflictions, uh, Venerable really, um, she says that they, they really go into depth on these in volume three. But I did want to, uh, they're called auxiliary because they're closely related to the root afflictions and are classified according to the root afflictions in which they're associated. So some of these uh, afflictions derive from anger, wrath, resentment, spite, jealousy, and cruelty. Other ones are derived from attachment, miserliness, haughtiness, agitation, or also called restlessness. Ones are afflictions derived from ignorance, concealment, dullness, laziness, lack of faith, forgetfulness, non-introspective awareness. So you can see some of these can be counteracted by those, those uh, virtuous mental factors. Afflictions derived from both attachment and ignorance, pretense and deceit, pretension and deceit. Afflictions derived from ignorance, anger, and attachment. So here's lack of integrity, inconsideration for others, heedlessness and distraction. So those are, once again, they have very powerful uh, antidotes in the uh, virtuous mental factors. Um, then we have the four variable ones that can be either or depending on our motivation and other mental factors accompanying them. Sleep, regret, investigation, and analysis. I'm trying to track my time here. Um, so how would sleep not be... How would it be virtuous, not virtuous? How would we, how would that work? When would sleep be a virtuous activity? Yeah, Nicole. It depends on what our motivation is. So if we go to sleep with the motivation to rest ourselves so that we can practice well and benefit sentient beings, that's then a virtuous activity. Okay, and then what about non-virtue? <laughs> if we're kind of falling asleep in meditation because we're just not really like trying very hard or we're just lazing around in bed rather than getting up and doing our chores, then it's not really, that's not virtuous. <laughs> so much easier to do than to go to bed with a virtuous mind. How about regret? When does that fall into um, non-virtue? We know the regret, the virtuous one very well, but when would, when would it fall into non-virtue? I shouldn't have helped her. God, what was I thinking? <laughs> yeah. How about investigation? When would that be either virtuous or non-virtuous? What would we want to investigate that would be a virtuous object? Okay. Analyzing, huh? Oh, empty, emptiness would be a virtuous, would, investigating emptiness would be a virtuous mental factor. Would put investigation to a virtuous state. Investigating all of... <laughs> exactly, and how much they're putting on the spoon. Well, let me go find out who the culprit is. Finding fault, investigating the faults of others, you know, really getting into all their bad habits and what's, what's the problem here. That would be investigating a non-virtue. And how about analysis? When would that be um, non-virtuous? 
what would we what would we want to be looking at and analyzing that would cause either harm to ourselves or others? What might that be? Analyzing what kind of object? Okay. Trying to figure out and analyze the circumstances and where you would meet and how you would do it and the timing and how you. How can I cheat on my income tax? Yep. <laughs> that takes some fairly, uh, okay, Venerable Chuni is saying the analysis where you're trying to figure out how to get somebody who voted for somebody to change their mind and vote for somebody that they didn't vote for. Give her her microphone because I can't capture Venerable Chuni's uh, analysis, non-virtuous analysis. How to figure out to persuade, how to persuade the people who have to certify those people who were voted to say that the people who voted for the person that they voted for did, did not, not in vote fact, for vote for the person that they voted for. Okay, that is absolutely non-virtuous analysis. Futile. And futile. Okay. Um, Okay, so in the kind of at the bottom of this whole section on mental factors, His Holiness is very, um, very encouraging. He says, you know, we can unpack the mental factors in depth. I mean, I'm saying these are brief descriptions, give us an, an idea of how our mind operates, the various kinds of thoughts, attitudes, and emotions we have at different times. And he says, it also provides a structure that helps us to get to know ourselves. We become more aware of our mental states. And he says, and Venerable says when she taught on this, um, these mental factors, she says, it's really helpful to name our thoughts and emotions. There's something powerful about identifying them, their attributes, their qualities, their characteristics. While meditating or going about our day, we can practice identifying various mental factors and discerning, is this a cause for happiness or is this a cause for pain? Can you imagine having that kind of life here at the Abbey where you actually walk around and you think like this? I would love to do this. I do this only on rare occasion is to say, you know, why am I doing this and, 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 and how am I feeling about doing this? But to know that by identifying the various mental factors that are in our mind, that can really give us some juice to figure out, you know, which, which road are we heading on in the moment. Then he says, when afflictions manifest on our minds, we must be able to identify the mental factors that are opposed to it and activate them. So that is his, you know, really his very strong encouragement to first be able to name and recognize them and know what's going on inside of ourselves. And when the afflictions arise, to know what their counterforces are, to really have them in our, in our medicine chest. And then the last big um, subheading in this chapter was, um, oh, I did want to just, um, after this whole thing with the mental factors in the mind, I thought of that verse we have, which is in all actions I will examine my mind and the moment a disturbing attitude arises endangering myself and others, I will firmly confront and avert it. That's pretty much what I summarized from that paragraph of His Holiness's uh, advice. So then the last subheading was the conceptual and the non-conceptual consciousness. This one I find really fascinating. Okay, so a non-conceptual consciousness knows its object directly without the medium of a conceptual appearance appearing to the mind. 
So sense consciousnesses are always non-conceptual. They're direct perceivers. Mental consciousnesses may be either conceptual or non-conceptual. A non-conceptual one is a clairvoyance or a yogic, yogic direct perceiver of emptiness. Thought is conceptual. It doesn't know its object clearly, but only via conceptual appearance appearing to the mind. The conceptual appearance is a representative representation of the object. It is not the actual object, but allows us to think about the qualities and the aspects of that object. I, there's, there's something about this subheading that just caught my attention. Memories, thoughts, views, plans, imaginings, afflictions are all conceptual consciousnesses. They, they range, a huge range of them, from the thought, I think I'll make tofu skins tomorrow for lunch, to the conception of grasping at inherent existence, to the correct assumption of the meaning of emptiness, to an inferential cognizer of emptiness on the path of preparation that will soon transform into a non-conceptual direct perceiver of emptiness on the path of seeing. So the conceptual consciousness is a wide range of just daily thinking on how to get by, how to have relationships, how to do our offering service, how to think about the Dharma, all the way up to the path of preparation with these deep inferential cognizers of emptiness. Now, conceptual consciousnesses are useful because through them we can understand the bigger, the broader properties, the potentials of things, and the relationships among them. Because we've got all this phenomena going on around us all the time. They help us to learn things that we can't perceive directly through our sense perceivers. So things like scientific theories, thinking about planning what trees will be taken down off Paramita next week. You know, that's not existing right now, but I'm trying to figure out how that's going to look. Considering measures that might mitigate global warming. All depend on our ability to conceptualize objects, their causes, their results, their relationships. Pretty much our entire education system is based on using our conceptual consciousness. Thought is able to apprehend objects that do not exist in the present moment. I find that fascinating. We are thinking of things in the moment that don't exist except as a, as a, mere, a, a conceptual appearance to the mind. But what it does, it gives us the ability to remember our previous experiences and learn from them and plan for the future, like to make aspirations like Buddhahood. Whereas direct perceivers are immediate, they know objects that exist in the present. They apprehend you know, all those color, shape, texture, temperature, taste, the smell of pizza. And this is what is so interesting and powerful, I find, about direct perceivers. What they say, though, is that a visual direct perceiver sees many things in the field of perception, directly and clearly. Where the conceptual consciousnesses are selective and focus only on a few aspects of the object, picking out certain attributes and constructing an appearance of that object. So a lot of our memories, which is why all of us have different memories of the same thing. You know, we can be in the same place, the same room, listening to the teachings, and then when we somebody comes back and says, "Well, 
what did, what did the room where you had, where the teaching shut, what was in that room? And they asked all of us, we would have a very, very different explanation of what we saw in that room. Our, our conceptual consciousnesses are very selective on what we pull out to focus on. Hmm. So then I, these questions came up for me. Direct perceivers take in everything about an object. Immediately, what's right there in the present moment, color, shape, texture, whatever, the smell. But when we are directly seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, or touching, how present are we during that experience? Or does inattentive awareness arise and we space out? I was trying to think, you know, looking at a wall or looking at the altar here, like how much am I really directly perceiving it? And how soon after I look at this altar do I start describing it to myself? Or I start explaining it to myself or making statements about or opinions about it. How long does a direct perceive, you know, how long can we directly perceive something from our senses without getting into um, commentary? <laughs> so I made this little, this, this funny, this little example. Three people are having lunch in a restaurant. They order lunch, catch up with each other, and at some time during the meal, I would say, all of the sense consciousness get a chance to take in corresponding objects plus the mental consciousness. So they're at this restaurant. So the sense consciousness, the, the visual, the olfactory, the auditory, the gustatory, and the tactile, sooner or later during the course of that lunch, you're going to engage in some form or another, as well as the mental consciousness. Afterwards, when you ask these three people what they remember about that lunch, we're going to have maybe some similarities, but probably not. One member is going to remember that her friend had a new haircut that made her look younger and enhanced her blue eyes. Maybe she got a little jealous because she looked really good. Her friend looked really good. The other friend couldn't stop thinking about the argument that was going on at the next table between two men that escalated until one of them left in a rage. And one of the men reminded her of her brother. The third friend loved the lunch with her friends because she felt so connected to them and how they were so happy for her as she shared her recent promotion. <laughs> so here are three people that were sitting having lunch and they had three very, very different experiences because of what's, what, what influences the, the selectivity of our conceptual minds. You know, some people are better holding, you know, direct auditory consciousnesses when you're, you know, listening to a, a, a live symphony. You know, maybe some people can listen to that totally with their auditory consciousness engaged without a lot of thinking. Other people, you know, you're going off on the last symphony, the, the recording you got at home, or who you know that plays that instrument. Um, every, and then the, when the conceptual consciousness arises, everyone without exception conflates things differently. You know, is it our karma? Is it our conditioning? Is it familiarization? I mean, look at the polarization in our country right now. Look at all the conflating of time, place, characteristics of objects, opinions, views, sense consciousnesses, discrimination, and then all the mental factors that are arising. But when we're imagining them in our minds, they're not existing anymore. I find that, I mean, 
what makes this, what makes these minds do what they do? So His Holiness says, sort of to finish off here, that he says there are advantages and disadvantages of both the conceptual and the non-conceptual consciousness in daily life in our Dharma practice. So perceiving objects, let's say this beautiful altar right now, we get immediate information about the altar. The visual consciousness might be looking at the lights, might be looking at the offerings, might be looking at His Holiness's picture, the statues. Anything in this room, we can have a direct cognition with any of our five senses. However, His Holiness says, direct perceivers cannot remember objects, nor can they relate one object to another. They can't invent new items. They can't plan how things will be used, remember previous experiences with them so that we can apply what we learned. Direct perceivers can't do that. I find that fascinating. Thought enables us to do all of this. However, the price we pay with thought is that conceptual appearance is a conflation of objects at different times, different places, with different characteristics, kind of all mushed together. It lacks the vividness and the clarity of direct perceivers. So we hear the sounds of Dharma teachings on impermanence, we see the black squiggles in a book about the topic, so that's non-conceptual, direct perception, our auditory and visual consciousnesses. But to be able to understand the squiggles and to understand the auditory consciousness requires the work of the conceptual consciousness. So learning to differentiate the way that both these consciousnesses apprehend their objects gives us kind of a new and valuable tool to understand how our minds work. It enables us to be more aware of when we're conceptualizing and forming a whole bunch of opinions and judgments about someone versus when we're actually experiencing them directly and knowing that person. Seeing a person directly is very different from fabricating an image of them. There are over 7 billion people, human beings on this planet, yet when you say, think about a human being, just for a moment, let's say, think of a human being. The general meaning of a human being appears to our mind. And for seven plus billion people, that conceptual appearance is going to look totally different. Seven billion plus different versions of what a human being looks like. So, in, and as a result, it's challenging to greet situations and people freshly without our conceptual consciousness superimposing, you know, the previous meeting we had, whether it was pleasant or unpleasant, what kind of associations we have with each other. Now, you know, there's that whole kind of thing I was thinking about last week when I did that BBC, that although in some cases our memory may have some truth that gives us useful, useful information, a lot of the times they're just overlaid with a lot of attachment, aversion, confusion. So conceptions are involved in cultivating wisdom. All right. The process of studying, reflecting, meditating on the Buddha's teachings requires conceptual consciousness that give meaning to sounds, meaning to squiggles. Learning what we have learned, reflect on them, discuss them, debating them, involves the conceptual consciousness. Meditating, understanding initially the topic such as emptiness is conceptual. Our first realization is by means of an inferential cognizer, a conceptual consciousness. 
And so His Holiness really, you know, continually comes back to this idea that although we can't substitute for the direct, the direct non-conceptual realization of emptiness, that these are necessary stepping stones to be able to do that. Going all the way from erroneous misconception, all the way through the seven types of awarenesses, all the way to direct perception. By meditating, you know, slowly the veil of conceptual appearance begins to thin until finally it just falls away and we have this direct perception. But we can't get there without starting with the erroneous misconceptions of working our way through the doubt, the correct assumptions forever. Who knows how many lifetimes we just have correct assumptions. But to see that these minds have meaning, they have purpose, and there's there's a practical ascension of them, progress of them. So, and then, you know, we, then we start using these minds, these conceptual minds to understand, you know, what is the self? To examine all the phenomena that, that surrounds us, to, to understand and to try to figure out through these wonderful minds that we have on how things exist. And so it's really, um, and we've got, we've got like gems in the rough here, folks, these minds of ours. And so to be able to understand, you know, how we exist and what what they what part they play in that merely labeled self, and to understand that we can really utilize them um, to attain our final goal. So that's pretty much what I got out of this chapter. <laughs> and there's a lot that I didn't, and a lot just came out with what I thought. So anyway, I hope it was helpful. <laughs> uh, okay, we got a question. Is that what? That- Okay, we'll open it for the floor. <laughs> Someone asks, is it possible to be a lay person or a householder that fits in or has the ability to function in society if one devotes themselves to virtue? It seems like Western culture is pretty anathema to it. Does following Dharma separate you from the rest of the world? Wow. Well, I think being a lay Dharma practitioner is a remarkable choice to make in life. I think that the world needs you at whatever level you practice. And that the virtue that you do your best to cultivate and hold in your life will contribute to the peace and the well-being of the world, without a doubt. So don't disavow, don't minimize the fact that you're a lay Dharma practitioner. The Dharma, the Dharma needs to be expressed and manifest in the world in a myriad of ways. You'll be able to access people and touch people's hearts that we won't ever be able to. And so that's really... Don't, that's, that's your contribution to the world, and it's wonderful. All right. So thank you, everybody, for your participation. <laughs> Let's dedicate.